want you to open up your Bibles in John chapter 8. We're going into chapter 8. You see, all we do is we're following Jesus. And we see how He reacts in situations. And the reason why we do that is so that we can learn as He shows us examples of how to react in those situations. That's all. We follow Jesus. I don't want to follow any other man but Jesus. He's the one. He's the high and holy one that we follow. His example sets the path for us. The Bible calls Him the Word. He says in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we read in Psalms, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So if you want to find your way in life, follow the Lamb. Follow the Son. Follow Jesus. Follow Him. And He will give you good guidance. We come to John chapter 8 this morning, and the theme of our title today is Throw the First Stone, which we find Jesus' words in John chapter 8 verse 7. At the end of chapter 7, we found these religious leaders who rejected Jesus, who remember the words of the crowd when they came and they said, no man has spoke like this before. And then the Pharisees said to them, are you also deceived? You are deceived like all of the crowd. But I want to say this morning, they were the deceived ones. And it's so true in this day and time we're living in, there are so many people who are deceived by the lie. And the same happened to them. Very clever people. Look, cleverness doesn't bring you closer to God. It doesn't. You might be the person with the highest IQ in the world, it's not going to bring you closer to God. You cannot reason God out with your mind. I'm also not saying you should put your mind apart. No, no, everything worked together and He comes to you and He came to them and they rejected Him. And then, in verse 53, He says, And everyone went to his own house. Now before we get into chapter 8, there's a lot of disagreement about this passage. There's a group of people who say that it does not belong in the Bible. Because if you look at the earliest manuscripts, it was not there. And then there's another group who says, well, it belongs in the Bible because it is in the textus receptus, which is text where it came from. And in most of the Greek texts, it's there. In some of your Bibles, you will see a footnote there which says, not in the original text. In some Bibles, you will find this passage at the end of the Gospel of John. In others, they just leave it out. I've even heard a man, he said, I'm not going to preach through that because it doesn't belong in the Bible, and he skipped right through to verse 12. Now I look at this and I think, it is in my Bible. And you know what? There is such a profound message coming out of this. And I'm going to give you an expository this morning about it. With that in mind, let's continue and open up the Word as we go through this passage. In John chapter 7, verse 53, he says, And every man went unto his own house. These people turned back to their own houses. In verse 1, he says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He always went to the mountain to do what? To pray. Our Lord was a man of prayer. 
And whenever there was ministry happening, he would pull himself away from people and he started to pray. The Mount of Olives was close to Jerusalem, so he, he retreat to the mount. While people go to their houses, he goes to the mountain. And it, it brings to mind that verse in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, when he said to a man following him, he says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He just brought that to mind when I read that passage. They went to their own houses, but he went to the Mount of Olives to obviously pray and spend the night there. I also want to say that Jesus didn't collect money for his ministry. You didn't ever see Jesus nor his disciples come out and say, Oh, brothers and sisters, this month we're a little bit in trouble. If you can only put in an extra little bit here, we're going to help the ministry. Or we've got a shortfall of $20,000. Now this month you... No, never, never. And you see, this is what I believe as well. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Jesus didn't collect for this. Houses wasn't important for him. Now I'm not saying your house is not important. Because you're living in it. And it gives you shelter against the cold and the wind we've got out there today. But you see, he did not have that. He was heavenly minded, not earthly minded. And I just thought I'd throw it in here and bring it out for you that he went to the Mount of Olives while they went to their houses. Now this is important. Early the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. I love to understand how Jesus operates. Listen, we follow him and follow his example. What do you go and do in the temple? You go to worship God. He went early in the morning to go and worship God. And he went to the temple which is known as a place to worship God. And we need to learn by that example. Early in the morning, get up and worship God in your own home. Reach Him early in the morning when it's still fresh. And then it says that when He came, the people came to Him and He sat down. That's what they did in those times. The rabbis, the teachers, they will sit down. It's not like me today standing up and you sit down. It was the other way around. The people would come in, they would stand around, and when the teacher sits down, and remember it's the seed of authority then, he sits down. If you look back in, in, in the Gospels, when he went on in Matthew chapter 5, you will find there, when he sat down and opened up his mouth, they were all quiet. There was no disorder amongst them. Not all of a sudden somebody jumps up here or somebody rolls over there. No, no. When he sat down in the seat of authority, opens his mouth, he's got the authority, and then he speaks, like they say in the previous chapter, like no man spoke before. With the power of God, the dynamis of God, the dynamics of God. And when he sat down, he taught them. And before we find what he taught them, there's something happening here now. As we see in verse 3, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And this is where people say, well, right through the gospel, John calls them Jews, but here all of a sudden he calls them scribes and Pharisees. Well, you and I know who they are. They are against Christ. They are the religion. 
they wanted to kill him. They are following the law and make their own law. And if you do not follow the law, they judge you and they punish you. It's these people who brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And let me tell you, dear friends, adultery is voluntary sexual relationships between a married person and a person who is not their spouse. It's also called infidelity. And this is serious. This is a serious offense. And it gives me an opportunity this morning to preach from the pulpit of the church against this. You see, I reckon the church has moved away from talking about things that the Bible is very clear on. And this is one of those things. Adultery. And it's so clear. Infidelity. They brought this woman and they were right. She was wrong. These days, it is acceptable in our society. It was not like then. I go back to the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And it was still not acceptable in our society. But now I look at the 90s and in the 2000s and where we are today, and adultery is acceptable. You look at Hollywood, for instance, and every single movie they bring out, they say it's acceptable. And you know what? Your children are watching it. You might come out of the years and the, and, the, and the eras where you're against it, and you say, well, I will sit there and watch it, and I can determine because my upbringing is against it, I will not take it on board. But your children are looking at that, and they are taking it on board, and it becomes the new norm for them. Yet the Bible is against it. Absolutely against it. So Hollywood is at the forefront now and people don't read their Bibles anymore but they follow Hollywood and because it's acceptable in Hollywood it's acceptable in our society. I mean you just look at these superstars. How many times do they have to get married? If you read about one they married and six months later they divorce and then they marry again and seven months later they divorce. And then they marry again and maybe they hold two years and all along there's a group of children coming with this and you know it's acceptable because everybody buy the magazines. It's the goss, isn't it? The gossip. And everybody wants to see what's Miley Cyrus going to do now. What is this person going to do now? Who's she hanging out with now? I don't like her with that guy. I like her with that guy. Let's see if they can spread up and get them. And in the meantime, the Bible calls it adultery and it's wrong. With it, it brings so many diseases that people are dying from. And, and governments are spending money on getting medication against these diseases, but they will not address, address the problem here. No, no, it's not a problem, the sin here of adultery. You know, I call it rich prostitution. Jump from one to another to another. And the Bible is very clear about it. So when we look at these people here in John chapter 8 verse 3, they were right to bring this lady up. The law that they stated is against it. Our schools today are promoting this. Safe schools is not from God. Safe schools is out of the pit of hell. 
because they are now telling our little children and they show them from an early age what sexual morality is all about. But let me tell you that it is not sexual morality in schools, it's sexual immorality in schools. And I'll tell you what, we need to preach that in church. Why is this message quiet? Why ain't people talking about this? And I hope that through this message going into the internet, it goes wide out. And I'll tell you what, I will be persecuted for this message, but I don't care because the Bible says it's a sin. In the schools today, they say, well, you've got to try out a few partners before you find the right one. This is what they tell your children in schools. So Hollywood is not saying it's a sin. The schools aren't saying it is a sin. Parents aren't saying it's a sin anymore because they're influenced by Hollywood. So it's acceptable in these areas. Let's see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Shall I do that? How can you make your members a member of a prostitute? I'll tell you how if you lie with a prostitute, male or female. Never, he says. You cannot do that. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. This comes out of the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, or chapter 2, he says the two will become one flesh. That is called a marriage. That's called coming together and married before God. This is what it's called. They will become one flesh. Now, if you go around and you were one prostitute and another one and another one, you know what's going to happen? You become one flesh with one, one flesh with another, one flesh with... That's, he says, no, you cannot do that. Yet, again, if you watch what Hollywood is dishing out, you find prostitution is rife. In fact, governments has legalized prostitution. They say it's fine, it's good. They are making money, aren't they? It's a job, isn't it? It could be a job, but it's a sin before God. Let's say it what it is, friends. Let's say it so that the world can know that this church stands against adultery. And as, as long as I've got breath in my lungs, and as long as my heart beats, I will preach out against adultery, and I'll call it what it is. It is a sin before God. Serious message, isn't it? And they say, well, it doesn't belong in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, he says, nevertheless, this is Paul again to the Corinthians. And let me give you a little bit of background of the Corinthians. Those were the people who were living really loose in their day. I mean, you were called a Corinthian. They know that you party hard and you live loose. And this is why Paul writes to them. Prostitution was rife in that day. Why didn't Paul keep his mouth shut then about it? Why didn't Paul turn the other way and looked away from it? No, no, it's got to be addressed. Yet these days people hold them up with all other nonsense, but do not address sin which is sin. And it's not a problem. Listen, you can't get medication for this. You can't get pills for this. 
There's only one pill that will help this, and that's the gospel. Repent of thy sin and turn to God. And here in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2, he says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, what then? Let each man have his own wife. Can you see that's a plural and not wives? Wife, wives. It's a plural. He says his own wife. And let each woman have her own husband. So it's very clear out of these passages. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32, he says, Whoever commits adultery, what's this woman was caught. The woman was caught in adultery. Everything I've said in the last five minutes, he says it here in Proverbs 6.32. Whoever commits that with a prostitute or outside of wedlock or married people doing this, whoever do this with a woman, and I want to say with a man as well, lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. You might say, well, nothing happened but your soul is destroyed. So this is the woman. So let's get back to the case. I just wanted to bring to you the seriousness of what this woman was caught with. So then the scribes and the Pharisees brought her in and think for yourself what's going to happen now. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us to, that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Think for a minute what happens here. Jesus sat down in the seat of authority. He's teaching them. A commotion happens. Everybody looks up. What's going on? Loud voices. They pull this lady. Okay, I, I'm just thinking this through. I'm not saying it's a script. They pull her by the arm. They caught her in the very act so Simos probably didn't have time to put proper clothing on to come into the temple place. Threw her in front, in the middle where everybody could see it. The shame associated with that. She didn't have time to prepare for this. She was caught in the act, it says. And, and they come in a whole group and bring her on and threw her down in front of him and and then they say, now Moses in the law commanded us that she should be stoned. She should be killed. But we want to know what you say about this. Now I just raved on for a few minutes about how bad adultery is, isn't it? And everybody in this place has got a serious look about it. You know, as, as I went on and talked against adultery, I can imagine myself standing there with the crowd and go, yeah! Look what she's done. She was caught in the act and she looked. See how she looks. You know, glad there's no children here, but look at her. Throw her in the middle there in front of everybody. Is that the way we go about things? Is that how we do things? Is that how we're supposed to do things? You see, we can point finger at these people, but so often we do the same. It doesn't have to be an adulteress. It, it could be something else. If you throw anybody through gossiping in the middle of a conversation, you do the same thing. You're, you've already judged. You just want the final punishment now from Jesus. Jesus, surely you're on our side. Look, look. Think about the shame that she came in and amongst them. 
And they were right. The law did state this. They were standing on the law. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 22, 22, if a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband. How many times is this happening? How many times? If it be found that with a woman who lies with to another husband, then they shall both of them die. This was a serious offense. Listen, this is what God instituted in the Old Testament. They shall die. Both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shall thou put away evil from Israel. You see, adultery are associated with evil. Can you see that? It's not me. I'm not trying to influence you. It says they will put away the evil from Israel. So serious it was. And here in verse 6 they said this, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And, and now we find their agenda. They caught this lady in the act while she was busy doing what she was doing, which is an evil which is not supposed to happen. They are right by law to grab her, and they, and, and they throw her in between them. That wasn't right. I'm saying, not saying that is right. But the reason they wanted to do this is to test Jesus. Let's test him and see how he's going to react on this. You see, there were three dangers in this test for him. If he said, set her free, then they could claim that he's breaking Moses' law. And he could not be the Messiah because he's breaking the law. So if, if he said, no, let her go, that's it, breaking it. If he says stoner, then he's not the Messiah. Why? Because he hasn't got grace and compassion, which the Bible talks about. And if he says nothing, well, then they can black, blame him to lack wisdom and discredit him. So they try to put him into a no-win situation. And lawyers like to do that, isn't it? He's on the spot now. She's not on the spot here. He is. Let's face this. And they will try to find out how he's going to do. And this is for the first time ever that we see Jesus writing. Have you noticed that? He's always just been talking. I find nowhere that Jesus was writing. You don't, don't find the gospel according to Jesus in your Bible, do you? No, he is the gospel. He is the good news. Written, written in your hearts. Not with hands. Isn't it wonderful? But here for the first time, we find him writing in the ground. Writing something on the ground. And people wonder what he wrote on the ground. What did he write in the ground? And let me just say, before I go any further, nobody knows. Nobody knows what he writes in the ground. Oh, there's a lot of assumptions, and I'm going to make an assumption today. I'm going to give you a most probable thing that he did write in the ground. But one day when we're with him, we can ask him that question. Jesus, what did you write that day in the ground? Now, if it is what I'm saying today, and it's not only my words, I've really read up about it, and there's a lot of commentaries who agree with what I'm saying. If it's really that, well, we won't be surprised, but we will be surprised when he says, this is what I wrote on the ground. So, he wrote on the ground as though he did not hear them. But what I learned from this is that he wasn't rushed into his decision, was he? 
And we can learn from that. How many times have you made a decision out of just quickly? And how many times was that the wrong decision? Oh, I can put my hand up. Somebody bring a case to me and I go, no, 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 that's not how it works. Blah, blah, blah. And I go off and I give my opinion about it. Then just later or not only five or ten minutes later to find out, oops, I was totally wrong. And what did I do about myself? No, no, I learned from Jesus, he is absolutely calm. In the midst of this commotion, in the midst of the shamefulness of this woman standing there, I don't know, maybe she had clothes on, maybe she had only a few pieces over to cover her, I don't know. But, and, and this commotion, the angriness of the crowd, in the midst of all of that, I see a calm, collected Jesus. He stooped down, and he right as if he didn't hear him. Did he hear them? Of course he did. Of course he heard them. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin amongst you, let him throw a stone at her first. That is really interesting, isn't it? I like that. You know, when he said that, He who is without sin, pick up the first stone. And that's where we get our theme for our message today. Throw first. And you know, in fact, they wanted to show that he's breaking the law, but they were breaking the law. Let me show you. In Deuteronomy 17 verse 6, it also writes about this. It says, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Where was this lady's witnesses? Did they have them there? They just pulled her in there. And then they post the question. Where is the witness? Where did they say witness number one? Did you see her in the act? Witness number two. They said she was caught in the act. But who can believe them? Where's witness number two? Where's witness number three? There were no witnesses there. Well, I read of none. Of none. They didn't put their case forward. So they were breaking the law themselves. But you see, that's because of their agenda. Secondly, he shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness only. Why? Because it could be somebody who's against that person. Oh, I'm going to get back at him. I'm going to say. And this happens right in our day and age, isn't it? How many times have you believed something about another person just because one person told you that? Come on, we're all in the same. We can't point finger. How many times have you been in a position where you said, wait a minute, that's what you say. Let's find out the other side of the story. How many of you know that there's two sides of a story? And sometimes three, four, and five sides of a story. But you see, we as humanity, as mankind, because of our sinful nature, runs for the easiest and the quickest thing. One person comes to you and says, this is the situation, and boom, you're in. And you become the second witness, although you haven't seen it. Because you go on hearsay. And here they break the law. They, they didn't have the witnesses. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. Now this really got them. Because they knew this law. And I'm going to show you why it got them. Jesus was just quoting what is in the law. You know, in my mind, I think he's saying, you bring this to me to test me against the law. Let me test you against the law. It says here in Deuteronomy these words, and he knew the Scriptures. So he said exactly to them, he says, 
He who is without sin amongst you, let him throw the first stone at her. Because it's written in their law in Deuteronomy that the first witness will throw the first stone. And after we have the hands of all the people, then everybody comes in. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So they were breaking the law. Think about that. Because they tested him. They wanted him to say something out of rash, just off the cuff. But Jesus never did that. When he said it, he meant it. And he had purpose. So they bring her in. And he says, let him throw the first. Now this is not to say that, you know, we've got a a judicial system. You know, a system with judges and everything. It's not to say we can't put a judgment on somebody. But what he's saying here is, you know, because if we say that everybody has got to be sinless and perfect before they can do this, nobody will be. There's only one sinless person, and it was Jesus. He could have thrown the first stone because he was sinless. He didn't have the same sin. But I want to suggest to you that there might have been people standing in that crowd who did the same thing. Why do you say that? Well, let's see the reaction in verse 8. And again, he stooped down and rode on the ground. So he rode on the ground. They kept on... What what do you say, Jesus? He looked up and he says, He who is without sin, throw the first one. And then he stooped down and he rode on the ground again. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the oldest, even to the last. This is telling for me. This is telling. Why did they do that? Because he said, he who is without sin amongst you, let him throw the first stone. Well, we know that everybody is not without sin. Everybody had sin. But was it that particular sin he was talking about? Anyone with you, um, amongst you is not sinning the sin of adultery, let him throw the first stone. Is it that? It doesn't say it there. But you know what? These people were convicted as they walked out beginning from the oldest and even to the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman was standing in the midst. So the question is, what did, he, what did he write in the ground? What may he have written in the ground? Well, I want to suggest this scripture verse in Jeremiah. Chapter 17, verse 13. Look at this, it's really interesting. He says, O Lord, the hope of Israel... Now let me ask you, was he standing in front of them? He was sitting in front of them. The hope of Israel. He was the Lord. It's Jesus he's talking about. The hope of Israel. All who forsake you shall be ashamed. Who In, in this crowd with the women standing there caught in adultery and the scribes and Pharisees who wanted to test him. Who will be ashamed? They will be ashamed. And then he he qualifies this. He says, those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. Wow. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. We find Jesus stooping down and he writes on the ground. Shall be written because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Think, Think back. Remember he's at the Feast of Booths? Remember that. And what did he do on the last day of the great day of the feast? What did he do? They were throwing out a pitcher, an empty pitcher on the steps. You remember that? It's, it's two messages ago. Okay, it's on the internet. You can go and listen to it. But Jesus stood up and he says, Anyone who thirsts, who remembers that? Come unto me 
and streams of living water will come from the inside out. And thus he spoke of the Holy Spirit. Here in Jeremiah he says, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. They've forsaken Him. Now this is a suggestion, and, and, and again, please don't quote me in saying that this is what He wrote on the ground, because nobody knows. But this is a suggestion, that He either wrote this verse on the ground, and they been convicted, because they knew in their heart of their agenda. They wanted to cut Him out. They've already rejected Him, the hope, of Israel. They've already rejected him. All they wanted to do now is to pile on more evidence to kill him. And he most probably, no one knows, that wrote down this verse on the ground. And that started convicting them. A second proposition for what he wrote in the ground is that he started writing on the ground some of the names of the people in that room and the name of somebody who they were doing adultery with. And seeing that, feeling convicted of the very same act that they brought this lady in front of them, felt convicted and couldn't throw the first stone and started walking out. From the oldest, it says, to the youngest, they started walking out. Now in verse 10, when Jesus has raised himself up and saw no one but the woman... He said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Where's those people? They, they, they threw you in here. Had no one com com condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, this is why they reckon the forefathers didn't believe this belongs in the Bible because they say Jesus was soft on adultery. This is why they say it. Because it says here that there's no condemnation for her. You see, they, she needed to be condemned according to the law. And they say here Jesus is actually making it soft in adultery, and it's uh, idolatry, adultery, and then, you know, people is going to think adultery is fine. No, that's not what he did. He actually says, I don't condemn you because Jesus did not come to the earth to condemn, but to save sinners. It fits in with his message. He didn't come to condemn you. No, we all were born in sin. If Jesus had come to condemn, it would have been over all already, all gone. No, he came to set the captives free, to save sinners from the lake of fire, from hell. And then he said to her, go and sin no more. You see, he told her it's a sin. Adultery is a sin. Stop the sinning. Do not do that. Then... Jesus spoke to them again and says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You see, they came to ask judgment, condemnation from him. But he gave grace and truth. Isn't that his ministry? His ministry is a ministry of grace and truth. Go back to chapter 1. He came, Moses came and he brought the law, but Jesus came in grace and truth. The grace was given to whom? To the woman. And to them. Think about this. He gave them opportunity to be convicted. He could have condemned them there. He could have. But he gave them grace. There's still time. But he gave grace to her. But he also gave truth. 
He spoke to them the truth, and the truth convicted them. The truth shall set you free. And He also spake to her truth. He said, go and sin no more. It's the truth. You are sinning. Stop sinning. Because it will cause your death. He gave grace and truth. I read this passage illustration once about Napoleon when they caught a young man and they were going to kill him. They're going to, I think they were going to put him in front of a firing squad. And the days led up to when he was going to be executed. And this young man's mother came up to Napoleon. True story. Came up to Napoleon and she said, please pardon my son. And he said, no, he will be judged. He said, no, I didn't ask for judgment. I asked for mercy. And this is the same. You see, friends, we need to ask for mercy. And he gives us grace and mercy. But it is coming with truth. Now, let me finish by asking this. You say, wait a minute. Have this happened to you when you tell somebody about something wrong in life and they say, who are you to judge? Has it happened to you before? It's happened to me a lot of times. And you know what they do? They throw these passages in there. They say, if you stand in a glass house, throw the first stone. Oh man, I'll tell you what. The wicked know how to use the Bible to their help, isn't it? They do. If you come to them and say, look, what you're busy with in your life is wrong. It, it is, it's hurting your, your marriage. It is killing your, your health. Everything, if you continue down this life, you're going to lose everything. You know what they do? Who are you to judge? And what's the other one they like to bring? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, isn't it true that he says, judge not, that you be not judged? For what, with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast pearl before the swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. So what is Jesus saying here? Does he say we should not judge at all? No. This passage is about a sin that you do, and you see somebody else do, and now you go to that person and you want to condemn them for what they do. You want to correct them for what they do, but you do exactly the same thing. You see, if we go back to this here, when we see this woman coming in, he stooped down, he right. That's why I think maybe he did write their names down with the woman they did adultery with. Maybe, I don't know. But you see, the thing is, they were guilty in the same sin. That makes you an hypocrite. That makes you a hypocrite if you are the one stealing and you tell everybody you can't steal. That's hypocrite. That's what this talks about. Look at the big plank in your eye before you see the speck in your brother's eye. This is what it addresses. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, he says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. This is again, is the Bible contradicting itself? No, it's not. This is it. He says, if your brother sins against you, 
What do you do? You don't go to the, the, the Sydney Herald or the Melbourne Herald and you sell your story to them for everybody to see. You know, there's a lot of Sydney Heralds or Melbourne Heralds going around in the church. It's called gossip. Somebody do something against you, I should call it the Gospel Herald, okay? If somebody does something against you, man, look, what happens? You go out into that Gossip Herald and you are howled to everybody who must know about this. No, no. The directive here is you go to your brother one-on-one. First to your brother, you say, look, this thing that you've done is a sin. And then he says, if he doesn't hear you, or if he hears you, you have gained your brother. If you read that passage further, if he does not listen to you, then you take the elders to him. And if he still doesn't hear, then you take it to the church. That's the right way. And this is by, look, let me just throw this in here. This is how you deal with a brother. You see, that's in the church. You do not take your brothers to court. You deal with it in church. If it's your brother. Now, if it's a criminal offense against you, then obviously you need to react to that. But this is a sin against you. Go and tell him his fault. Yet here he says, do not judge not. You see? So it's not confusing for brothers and sisters. It is telling us what it is in context. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, he says, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all. Wow. Wow. That is us, isn't it? We've learned so many lessons. Can you see why this, I believe, belongs in the Bible? Have we learned something this morning? Think about this. This woman brought in there. She was caught, red-faced, embarrassed. Jesus dealt with that, but he dealt with the crowd as well. We'll leave it there. Let's pray.